MOPS leaders. I'm Gina Moran, and I'm here today with a very special guest. We have Seth Haynes with us, who is the author of Coming Clean. And Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about your book. Um, Coming Clean is my story of sobriety. It's a story of walking from um, addiction to alcohol and, and struggle with alcohol and into what I call the presence of an abiding God. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just my story. One of the things that um, I learned from hearing from you is that you you encourage us to change the way we look at our brokenness and in turn are challenging us to change the way the church looks at brokenness. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I think brokenness is um, just a part of life. It's every day. It's all of us. Nobody's perfect and nobody's fixed. And um, not just brokenness, but I like to talk about the ways that we look at addiction and the ways that we look at sobriety and actually recast those too. And I think the best place to start is to start with the understanding that we all have pain. Underneath whatever our experience is, we have some sort of pain, and that pain motivates us to certain actions. So for me, I had a crisis of faith. Um, and I'm sure we'll unpack that later, but I had a crisis of faith that led me to say, I don't want to feel anymore. And so in that, I picked up the bottle. And so my attachment, the thing that I used to get over the pain was alcohol. I have a dear friend who struggles with a shopping addiction, and she'll say all the time, you know, I grew up in this with a scarcity mentality. We never had enough. And whenever I feel that pain creeping up, I just go to Amazon and click, 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 click. Um, I talk to guys all the time who say my uh, sexual relationship with my wife isn't what I want it to be. And so I go on the internet at night and click, 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 click. I talk to women who say um, I have pain growing up about, you know, having to look a certain way. My father wanted me to be this or then my mother wanted me to be that. And it's, um, it's a real pain in my life. And from that has grown an eating disorder. And so as I talk to groups around the country, what I find is that we're all saying the same thing, which is we all have pain, and to cover the pain, we've run to this other thing to give us comfort, to to be the salve for our wound. And so as I talk, what I like to do is start with the understanding that we all have pain, and then understand that pretty much all of us are addicted to something too, right? And it's just like, what is that something? For me, it was alcohol. For you, it's something different. And how do we walk through the process of getting from pain through the addiction to whatever it is um, and into a place where we're only attached uh, to Jesus and where we come to him with our pain, where he is our healer um, and where we experience his abiding presence? Mm, That's really beautiful. When we talk about being in a MOPS group and and being in community with other women, what would you say to our leaders who are maybe feeling some of this brokenness themselves, but also might be looking at welcoming women into their community and into their group that may be experiencing some brokenness? How do they welcome them well, make them feel like they belong, and how do they walk alongside them in this? I think the first step is to understand and to recognize your own brokenness and your own pain. Um, And again, I mean, maybe brokenness is the wrong word because, again, we all share the same human condition, right? Now, you can call it sin. You can call it um, misplaced dependency or whatever you want to call it. But I think it starts with a group of leaders who are willing to say, I'm not any different than you. I'm just as as messy, uh, just as in the middle of everyday life as you are. Um, and I don't have this all together. And that kind of vulnerability 
is the place that it's inviting to a world that really desperately needs to see people being honest and saying, yeah, I know exactly where you are. I love that. Just that me too mentality that really breaks down a lot of barriers and builds trust. One of the things that I really loved that you spoke about is talking about Ephesians five thirteen and 14 and kind of um, the concept of something being exposed to the light becomes light. And I think that really fits beautifully with our theme this year and talking about light and darkness. Can you just tell me a little bit like what that means to you? Yeah, I love that scripture because that passage um, says that everything that is exposed to the light becomes a light in the New International Version. And the way I was raised... Everything that you expose to the light that sounds like sin or that sounds like a really bad, big, dark deed, it actually breeds shame. I mean, that's what we were taught, right? You hide those things because then you'll appear to be not godly enough or you hide those things because then um, others will judge you or, you know, whatever it is. But every time I heard the word sin, I associated it with shame. What that Ephesians passage teaches us is that when we bring those things to the light, when we expose those things to the light of God and to the light of Christ, and he works in us to bring healing, that those past stories, those that, the dark moments, those become a light for other people. So now, walking uh, three years into uh, my last drink, um, I can say, here's my story, here was my pain, here's how I coped. Um, through the power of the Spirit in the person of Jesus, I've overcome. And so now I can share with you the light to lead you out of the darkness. And light begets light begets light begets light. And so as we expose those things, we become more light. Others become light around us. And eventually, hopefully, the, the, the thought is that we can be a collective light in the darkness. Mm, yeah, I really love that. I hope that that's what our MOPS groups are out there doing, that that just bringing light to all of those places. Talk to me a little bit about the role that community played in your story and how we can provide community for people walking through something. I think a good place to start with that is to talk about what is the everyday experience of the Christian, right? So often we say we are struggling with X, Y, or Z. And somebody at first blush will say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm here for you. And two days later, you find out that they've told your prayer group to pray for you or, or whatever. And there's maybe some implicit judgment. Sometimes there's an explicit judgment, right? And so historically, the way I was raised, that, that was part of my background. I felt that. When we look at what Scripture teaches us about the role of the community, it's to be a wholly different type of community, It's not to use our struggle as fodder for the prayer session, right? It's not to use our struggle as a juicy piece of gossip. Instead, the role of the community in the Christian faith is to say, I see your struggle, I'm here for you, and I invite you in, and I'm going to help you along. I'm going to help you walk this road. I'm going to help hold you up. And I'm going to help hold you up because in the future, I'm going to fall, and I'm going to need you to help me up. So the way that played itself out in my story is I was in a Methodist church lobby and I saw a dear friend who was a believer in the way as I'd call it and she uh, was also an alcoholic. And when I walked to her and I said, I was terribly hungover, like painfully hungover that morning, 
Um, and I had the first inkling of, oh, yeah, I have a drinking problem. I saw her and I said, how did you know you had a drinking problem? And instead of quoting Bible verses at me or instead of, you know, dragging me to a prayer group, and there are plenty of people there I could have prayed with, she just looked at me very kindly and said, you know, don't you? And then began to gently walk me through, here are some of the things that you can look at to know whether you have a drinking problem. She was the first piece of community. Then I told a friend who is actually also a spiritual mentor, and he looked at me and said, I'm so sorry, do you need help? And then he took my phone and said, are you going to call Amber, your my wife, um, or do I need to do it? So he was he was firm, but he was also very gentle, very loving. And then I called my wife, and Amber said, okay, I hear you, I'll get rid of all the bottles. There was not a lick of judgment in her voice, like not an ounce of it, right? And then as I began to interact with a community of faith, I was a worship leader at a church. And they didn't come to me and say, well, you need to step off the stage. You don't need to lead worship anymore. Instead, it was, we're going to walk with you through this. We're going to continue to allow you to lead worship for the people with the understanding that you're just a person too. And we're going to all keep working together to make sure that you're walking in the light. That is Christian community. That's what being in loving Christian community looks like. And it doesn't always mean that you don't say the hard thing. But what it does always mean is that you love unconditionally. And that's what I experienced. Mm, That's really beautiful. Um, We talked a little bit earlier about how important forgiveness is, not only in situations like this, but just in our everyday walk as Christians and how sometimes we forget what an important role that plays in our lives. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, this is the story I didn't tell at MomCon, so I guess this is behind the scenes, right? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my drinking problem started in earnest in the hospital when my son was very sick, and we weren't sure if he was going to make it or not, and I didn't really want to feel anymore. And the pain came in part from the sickness of my son, there's no doubt, but also in my past, I'm a terrible asthmatic. In fact, before we were went on the air, I had to use my inhaler because I was choking on my coffee. Um, but um, I, I was a terrible asthmatic as a child, and my mom took me to a faith healer. But it's kind of a last-ditch effort. My mom's fantastic. She, she took me several places, allergists, actual doctors, all these places before. Uh, but sort of in a last-ditch effort, she took me to this faith healer. And he said to me, if you have enough faith, you can be healed. And even as I, I'm like telling you that story, I, I get a little anxious at the, at the comment. But I said the prayer, uh, went about my way, and I wasn't healed. And so as I'm thinking through his comments growing up, you know, if you have enough faith, you can be healed. And I'm thinking, like, how much more faith can you have than the faith of a six-year-old? I start to question, where is God? Does he even intervene anymore? Has he set the whole world in motion and just, like, walked away from it? Like, where is he, right? And I rationalized a lot of those things with theology and, and, you know, made my way around them to make kind of make the world make sense. But then when Titus became sick again, uh, that, that question became very real and present in my life. So a year later, fast forward, as I'm walking through this process of sobriety, I'm sitting with a therapist and he's saying, I understand you hurt over Titus, but I mean, he's still here. So it had been a year. He, he didn't die. He was on the mend, more or less, and he said, there's really no reason for you to still be feeling this pain. I mean, there's a lot of logistics that go into taking care of these medical needs, but what is the actual pain? And the actual pain, as we unpacked it, was, yeah, this, this idea that if I had enough faith, things would have changed, and nothing changed. 
And so what does that mean about God in my life? And as we began to talk about the role of the faith healer in my life and the pain from this theology in my life that started at six years old and haunted me and haunted me and haunted me, it became really clear that I needed to let that go. And the only way I could let that go was through forgiveness. And so for me, it was the process of beginning to walk through what does it look like to actually forgive. That's really impactful. I love that. What would you say if you could just have a minute to talk to our MOPS leaders as they're all listening and kind of wondering how to lead their groups and how to lead them well and how to reach women who are maybe far from Jesus or have walked away from the church, what would you say to them would be the biggest way that they could reach out to women who are different from that? What would that look like? It all starts first with with honesty and vulnerability. I mean, yeah, I think you have to show your weakness, your humanity. I think that's a better way to put it. I think you have to show, look, I'm human too. I have the same struggles. I have the same strengths and weaknesses. We are the same. That's step one. Step two is, you know, I I know you guys have had uh, Mike Foster on the podcast and he talks over and over about grace and giving people second chances and um, a beautiful theology, a beautiful man, a beautiful uh, framework. That is step two, certainly to, to extend grace. I think step three is walking into this forgiveness. It's not just forgiving people who've hurt you in the past. It's a huge component of it. It's also forgiving yourself. I mean, we're human. We will fail. And how do we get up, give ourselves grace, forgive ourselves, and walk forward into the freedom of Christ? But then it's also forgiving people, particularly when you say, how do they identify with people who aren't Christians or maybe who've walked away from Jesus? It's forgiving them over and over and over again for stiff-arming us when we try to reach out, when we try to extend grace, because they will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Scripture gives us a paradigm for that. So there are times in scriptures where in Scripture where Jesus says, uh, go and sin no more, or I forgive you of your sins. But there's one particular moment where he is speaking to those who are clearly not Jewish. They're clearly not in his context. And he's on the cross. And he's looking down at the Roman guards. These are people that are well outside of the fold. People who don't really care about his faith. And he looks down at them, and he doesn't say, Father, forgive them of their sins. And he could have. He'd done it before. But instead he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And my paraphrase of that is, Father, forgive them. They're really just doing the best they know how. They're just trying to make a paycheck for their family, right? They've been told to crucify me. They are crucifying me. They are murdering God in this moment. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think for us as believers, when we go out into the world and and into the culture and we are stiff-armed and we're uh, hurt and we're talked negatively uh, about, uh, instead of reacting to that, like sort of armoring up and fighting back and all these things, I think again we go and we say, Father, forgive them. They're doing the best they know how. And we're going to keep loving them and keep extending grace. And we're going to walk in love and grace and love and grace and love and grace. And every time we're stiff-armed, we're going to continue to forgive. And we're going to be relentless in our love and our grace. Mm, mm, I love that a lot. We had the chance to hear from you at MomCon. And you did something really beautiful with us. Everyone stood together holding hands, all 3,000 women, singing songs that meant something to them and um 
and and you just kind of used that as a beautiful picture of community. Talk to me a little bit about that. The scripture passage that we were talking about at MomCon comes from Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians 5, 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, in verse 19, Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And I've always thought that that's one of the weirdest verses in Scripture. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Like, why would you have, don't be drunk, but sing to each other? That just seems really bizarre, right? So as I started to look at that passage, particularly in the context of my own sobriety, I started to think about this as um, sort of a dichotomy, right? There are the actions of isolation, so drunkenness, maybe your shopping addiction, maybe your eating disorder. When we engage in these things, we don't really want to tell other people. We don't really want to be around other people. I had a woman um, talk to me recently about Vicodin addiction. And she said, I'll have really good seasons. And I'm in community and I'm loved and I feel supported. And then I'll start popping pills again. And all of a sudden I go to this really dark place and I pull away and I isolate and Um, I'm not in community. So as I look at that scripture, I see it as the acts of isolation, so drunkenness, versus the acts of the community. Where else do we sing songs to one another? I don't care if it's we're out and about in the world at a Coldplay concert singing, um, you know, yellow or whatever. We sing together there in community, or whether it's at church when we're singing hymns or when we're singing modern choruses, we're singing together, right? Only in community do you sing over each other and sing together. And so how do we uh, walk out of isolation and into a community of love and of hope and of grace and of forgiveness? And how are we vulnerable enough to sing over one another and to say, no, don't go off and isolate. Come into the community. Come into the chorus of the community. Let us sing over you. Let us give you love and come sing with us. And again, one day I need you to sing over me. I may be in a gutter next year drunk, and I may need you to come to me and sing over me and say, you're welcome back into the community. And so we we modeled that by standing and holding hands and by singing songs of love and hope over one another in the hope that someone who feels isolated would would once again feel, feel encouraged and brought back in. That's truly what I hope that every single one of our MOPS groups emulates in their own communities. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for being with us so much today, Seth. We certainly appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Seth, you can check out his website at sethhaines.com. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again soon. I think you're totally one of our family now. Thank you so much. Thanks. I'm glad to be in my family. 